I want to share with you guys a passage I'm going to be preaching on this morning. It's a passage that is really um, guided how I feel like God has been leading us this next semester as a church. And so as I read this out loud, I just want you to consider if there's anything in here for you. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick, James says, let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. For the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Heavenly Father, we do love you this morning. We give you all the praise, glory, and honor that we can possibly give because you're more than worthy of it all. Lord, you're invited to come and to speak to us right now and to challenge us. Lord, we let down our, our guard and our barriers and everything that would keep us from hearing from you today. And we just say, come, Lord Jesus, come, have your way in us. Father, we pray for big things around here at the church. God, and we ask you and we expect you to come and to move, to bring about healing, to bring reconciliation, to restore joy to the hopeless to bring conviction to those who are walking in unrepentant sin, to graciously bring us back to the foot of the cross and break empty religiosity and create authentic worship. God, we're praying and asking that you would do incredible things. And so uh, you're invited to come and do exactly that. God, would you be honored and praised in the preaching of your word today? In Jesus' name that I pray, amen and amen. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. Um, church, it's great to be back again with you guys today. Uh, this is the first time, our first time in a long time. We're kind of wrapping in a little transition period where we're kind of wrapping up a three-week recap of our vision a little bit and kind of going to be transitioning into a new series. We're going to start up next week on praying through the Psalms. But um, we have been doing that. We've been talking a little bit about vision. I know how difficult it is to remember kind of some of the basic things that God has called us to. And so if this is a first time or first time in a long time, um, the way we talk about our vision around here is that we hope and pray that by God's grace, we would become a multiplying, mission-minded family that is marked totally and completely by God's grace that brings joy to our surrounding community and glory to God. And so when we talk about our vision, we, we own the fact we're absolutely a family. We're one big, messy family. A lot of it's disconnected. A lot of it's messy. We look different, think different, talk different, things of that nature. But that's how family is. We are a family. And as much as you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he has adopted you into his family. He has given you the right to be called a child of God. And so we own that kind of a thing. We are family. Nevertheless, uh, the kind of family we want to become is a multiplying, mission-minded, others-centric, caring and loving the outside surrounding community, not just an inward focused family. Uh, in that vein, we talk about it like this. We hope and pray we're kind of like more like Medea's family than we are the Fockers, right? You remember Meet the Parents? Got the circle of trust no one can break into. Um, that's not the kind of family. We want to be more like Medea's family. They host a barbecue, and literally the entire city is over in their backyard in a second, and they could care less. They, they love it. They love being a part of that thing. It's what we want to become, a multiplying, mission-minded family that is totally and completely marked by God's grace to the point that everything that we do just comes out in everything that we do, and it brings joy joy to our surrounding community, and glory to God. In other words, church, what we're saying is we don't want to be a church that's content with the status quo around here. We don't want to be a country club kind of a church where we gather together and we just exchange numbers and contacts for business and things of that nature, or where we come in order to gain more and more safety or things like that. We, want to, we don't want to be a status quo kind of church. 
We want to be a church. We don't want to, we don't want to just go through the rhythms of empty religiosity when we've got people that can't lift up their head in faith and see God in any of their circumstances around. And we are praying big things. We're praying that, that we would be a church that's included in the 1% of all churches nationwide that are experiencing growth largely by reaching the unchurched and disconnected people that aren't already a part of a church. Uh, we're praying that we will be so marked by God's grace that even in disagreement with people in our community and all around the world, they'll never be able to deny the love that we have for them because that's the love that God has for them as well. We're praying incredible things like that the strongholds will be broken and that this will be a semester where your marriages are restored. These hopeless, dead marriages that you think are a dead end and they're going nowhere, that those would actually have life breathed back into them. We're praying that addictions would be broken and completely overcome that students would be set free and that Gen Z would come back home to the foot of the cross. We're praying that singles would find their satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're praying that prodigal children and wandering children would actually come back into the fold and love the Lord Jesus Christ with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're praying that empty religiosity would turn into authentic worship of the Lord Jesus. And we're praying that this would be a diverse body of believers that comes together in unity, people of every tribe, tongue, and nation that comes together in unity to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the kind of church that we're praying that we would become. But kind of like what we talked about a few weeks back, I, that kind of church just doesn't, doesn't just happen. And that kind of a fruit, it doesn't just, you don't just speak it into existence or anything like that. We don't just, we don't just the, those things don't just pop up overnight. And what James is going to say is that that kind of a fruit that we hope for and we pray for all the time in this church body, that kind of fruit requires a people who don't just talk about prayer, but they actually get on their knees and they pray. It's exactly, I mean, you just heard James talk about it. He just said it. He said, is anyone in trouble? Let him pray. If anyone's happy, let him sing songs of praise. If anyone among you is sick, let him call the elders of the church to pray. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, for the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. In other words, like church, you want to see a mighty move of God in your life and all around this city, then you've got to be a people that are committed to prayer. And so here it is, church, like as as we're in this little transitional time where I'm about to start a new series next week, I'm praying through the Psalms. Um, there's two things, there's two words that I think that God has continued to bring to mind a lot, um, especially in July as I prayed about this next semester. The two words are healing and prayer. Healing and prayer. Specifically that this would be a semester that God, through his Holy Spirit, would bring about incredible healing in your life. That strongholds of addiction would be completely shattered and broken in your life. And maybe it's just because over the course of this past year, I've been sensing that there's this stirring, that there's this, there's kind of a holy discontent that's been coming up within the, just, just all over the, the place of this church. I've been talking with life groups that are talking about things for the very first time. We've been railing about it a lot for a long time in the pulpit. People are confessing things and bringing them to the surface. They're talking with me. They're talking with different pastors. They're coming to our freedom prayer ministry, and they're talking about things. And I'm just sensing that there's this, there's this strong, holy discontent inside of our church that's saying, you know what? I'm not satisfied any longer by the sins that I've been continuing to live in for so long. I'm not satisfied with this country club religiosity that I've been satisfied with for so long. I'm not satisfied with the state of my marriage. I'm not satisfied with where we are as a family. I'm not satisfied by, by where I am alone in, in, my, in my relationship with the Lord. I'm not satisfied by any of these things. And maybe I'm just sensing that there's this holy discontent that is stirring inside of our church body. And what James is going to say is that for any of those things to happen, for any of those things to completely break, we've got to become a people that are comfortable on our knees, regularly coming before him, inviting him to come and do what we cannot do for ourselves. 
And so this morning, like all I want to do is just take a look at this text that in James chapter 5 and call us to pray. It's exactly what James is doing. The entire thing is a call to prayer. He's saying, here's what faith is. It's a faith that works. Here's all these different things. And so he wraps up the entire book with this call to prayer. And my hunch is, as we talk about a subject matter like prayer, is that you probably already know and you probably already desire a little bit saying, hey, I would love a stronger prayer life personally. Like you probably already have that hunch. I've talked about it a number of times before. Prayer is kind of a lot like working out and eating a salad, right? It's probably a lot better in theory than it is in practice, right? Like we, we're like, I like the idea of working out and eating a salad more so than I actually like working out and eating salads. Like that's kind of how, right? Have you ever been like that? Prayer works. Prayer is awesome. But the practice of it is not really something that I've committed my life to. And for a lot of us, there's a lot of things that are keeping us from that, right? For some, it's this academic problem. You've got questions, you overthink everything, and you're kind of going, okay, if I don't have all the solutions uh, right here figured out in my head, then I'm not going to be a person of prayer. You ask questions like, okay, well, why do I need to pray if he already knows the things that I need before I pray? Right? right? Have you ever wondered that before? Like, why do I need to pray to God if he already knows what's in my heart, he already knows what I really need? Why in the world should I pray um, if his will is already set? Does it actually accomplish anything? You ever ask that question? Like, do my prayers actually accomplish anything? Like, when I come to him and pray, why should I pray if, if his will is already determined? And I, uh, what's the point of praying in that way? Does it actually do anything, or am I just simply speaking to the clouds over here? I, uh, I can't see it. Sometimes the thing that I hoped for and didn't actually pray about, sometimes that actually happens. Sometimes the thing that I'm praying about all the time never actually takes place. Does it actually accomplish anything? I mean, we got questions, right? And a lot of times we get in our head and it kind of keeps us from moving forward. Like, what about Chick-fil-A? Do we need to pray for that or is it already pre-blessed? <laughs> it's already pre-blessed, right? That's the answer, right? It's already pre-blessed. How many fries can I eat before I need to pray? Thank you, John Christ, and, and things like that, right? It's complex. Caleb ta tapped into the complexity a little while ago. I'm teaching my, uh, my he was four at the time, how to pray. And uh, we were sitting there praying and I was, at, I was inviting him to, I was like, hey, buddy, I want you to pray tonight. And he's just like, he gets frozen in fear a little bit and says, you know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to pray because I don't know what to say. You ever been that, there before? We were kind of going, okay, okay, I know I'm supposed to do this thing, but God, what do I say? It feels like it's a one-sided one conversation. And I've been like, hey, buddy, I, I, I know how you feel because we've been there before. I think I've confessed to you before I'm a recovering father godder. You know what I'm talking about? You don't really know what to say in prayer, so you just repeat his name like a thousand times over and over again. Father God, Father God, Father God, like a thousand times. Anyway, I was recovering father godder forever, right? For some of us, I think it's this idea that... Um, I don't want to be a hindrance to God. I don't want to be a bother to God. I don't want to bring to him my problems and annoy him over and over. He's got bigger things to do than to listen to my prayers. In fact, not long ago, I was listening to this debate between a couple of theologians where they were discussing this, art, this, this subject matter right here. And one guy was making the case that God is so holy and he is so beyond you or me. He is so other than and transcendent in all of his ways that we can't just rush into the throne room of God uh, simply. Like it needs to be kind of like the Old Testament. There needs to be rituals and rhythms and things like that. You don't just rush into the throne room of God and just burden him with whatever's on your heart and your mind. And of course, the other guys are sitting there going, uh, you're completely wrong about that. That's exactly what you're supposed to do. The, the veil in the curtain has been torn uh, top to bottom. You have access to the Holy of Holies. He's kind of making this whole case. And so the other guy comes back and he's like, no, 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 you got to think about God kind of like the president of the United States of America, which you should never do, by the way, church, right? Like, <laughs> not even close to that. But he's like, that's his whole argument. He's like, God is kind of like the president of the United States of America. He's not. Um, but he goes in the sense of this. You would never just rush into the Oval Office and expect an appointment with him. And I love how the guy responds. He comes back and he goes, yes, you would. It's exactly what you would do if you knew that the President of the United States was your father. 
If you were his child and, and he was your father, you have access to that office in ways that no one else has access. Church, it's exactly how Jesus teaches us to pray in the, in the Lord's Prayer when he says, uh, disciples, you want to know how to pray? Here's how you pray. You begin in prayer like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed it be your name. In other words, don't you dare forget that there's a brand new relational dynamic that is going on in this conversation between you and God to where he's not just some stranger. He's not just some abstract idea sitting in a cloud far away. He has reconciled you and brought you into his family. He has given you the right to be called a child of God. And you now have direct access to the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. He is your father. So he says, our father who art in heaven, hallowed it be your name. Don't forget that there's a brand new relational dynamic going on to the point where he's not annoyed by your presence and and he takes joy in this conversation that you're about to have. And in case you didn't have that kind of dynamic with your father growing up, Hebrews is going to go on and say, okay, not the father image, but he's going to say he's kind of like, uh, he's going to say that he's a, uh, he's a kind and sympathetic, compassionate high priest. And so he says, because he's a compassionate high priest, we can approach him with confidence uh, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's who he is. He's kind and he's compassionate. Peter's going to say, cast all of your anxieties on him, knowing that he already cares for you. In other words, like you're anxious about life, bring your anxieties to him and, and cast them on the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that he already cares for you. There's a brand new relational dynamic taking place to the point that he's not annoyed by whatever it is that you want to talk about. George Mueller, the great uh, 19th century evangelist, pastor, preacher, um, a prayer warrior. He's written all the prayer books and everything like that. Uh, he had an incredible prayer life, and he had an incredible peace about his life. He tells a story that uh, sometime in the early 1900s, he's, just after he's married, he's looking around at the orphan crisis there in Bristol, England, and uh, he's just seeing orphans everywhere. No one's done anything about it at this point in time, and, and they just discern that God is leading to open up an orphanage. And so it's exactly what he does. He's looking at the orphan crisis, and he goes, okay, we're starting a brand new orphanage. Ashley Down Orphanage is uh, what, what came about from that. Uh, shortly after that, his wife came down with cancer. And, of course, back then, they don't have the advancements that we have today in a lot of ways, and she's quickly passing away. He's dealing with the grief of losing his wife, um, the difficulty of caring for her and taking care of medicine and all these different kinds of things, being her primary caregiver at the same time that there's a brand-new orphanage with over 40 to 50 different orphans there that he's in charge of. Meanwhile, he's got preaching responsibilities on the weekend. And people are looking at George Mueller, and they're kind of going, okay, how in the world do you have so much peace in the middle of so many difficulties, in the middle of so many different things that are going on in your life. And I love how he responded. He simply said, he said, it's simple. I rolled 60 cares upon the Lord this morning myself. I just rolled 60 cares upon the Lord this morning all by myself. And I love that response. He's quoting Psalm 55. It says, just roll your burdens upon the Lord and he's gonna sustain you. And that's what he says. You wanna know how I got so much peace in my life? I just rolled it up to Jesus. I just took these things. Here's all the anxieties. Here's all the, the difficulties that are going on in my life. Here's all the things I'm concerned about. And I just cast them upon Jesus knowing that he cares for me, that he's my good and loving heavenly father. And he welcomes me into this relationship. There's a brand new relational dynamic whereby he invites us to come in and to have these kinds of conversations with him. Church, it's exactly what James is saying in this passage right here. He says, is any of you in trouble? If any of you walked into tr with troubles this morning, he says, Pray. If any of you are sick, let them call the elders of the church to pray. In other words, church, like, he wants you to pray when you're in trouble. If, if you came in here and you've got questions and concerns, the first thing we got to do is we got to go to him in prayer. Chapter 1, Paul, James is going to say this. He's going to say, if any of you is in trouble and lacks wisdom about what to do, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. 
In other words, like he's not surprised by the fact that you've got questions, you don't have life figured out. He, it's kind of like he expects it. He, he understands that there's a disparity between his wisdom and our wisdom. He's not shocked by the fact that you're, you're coming to the end of your place and you're kind of going, Lord, I've got no idea what to do. I just lost my job. And how in the world are we going to provide for, th- for life? What are we going to do about this transition in life? God, do you want me to move? My, my company wants, me to, wants to take me halfway around the world. Right, or do you want me to stay back here? God, I don't know what to do here. What about my career? I mean, it feels like my career is going nowhere. Is this, God, is this really the thing that you've called me to? Or is there something new that you've called me to? God, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm, I'm troubled. My soul is troubled inside of me. God, I don't know what to do about the kids. Is it public school, private school, or homeschool? Like, do I need to go back to work or do I need to stay home with the kids? What do I need to do about that? Do I need to travel as much or do I need to say no to promotions and stay home a little bit more? God, what do you want me to do about this? God, you see this orphan crisis around here. What do you want me to do? Is it time to adopt? Is it time to, to engage in foster care and things like that? I'm just troubled, God. There's, there's this disruption going on inside of my soul. I don't know what to, suit, what to do. Do I marry this person or not? Like, do I choose this major or that major? Do I go to A&M or my second choice, Harvard, right? <laughs> right, it's everybody's tension and dilemma right there. And of course, the invitation church that's on the table is like, whatever that thing is, he's inviting you to bring it to him. Are you troubled? Are you confused? Do you need, are you lacking in wisdom? Is he your first resort? Or are you going to your friends? Or are you going to your own logical wisdom and your self-sufficiency right there? Or are you going to the self-help book? Or are you going to the planner? Or are you going to your think tank of people around you trying to figure out what needs to take place? Is he your first resort? Because the invitation on the table is like, I know that you're going to come to this place where you're desperate for wisdom. And in the middle of that place, when you're feeling troubled and you don't know what to do, he's inviting you to pray. He's inviting you to pray. And the beautiful thing is, he says, he says I'm not going to hold back from that. He says, I'm going to generously give it without a guilt trip. And church, some of you guys are there. You're at this crossroads and, and there's a massive, massive dilemmas going on in your life. And I'm just going to ask, church, is prayer your first resort? Is it literally the first thing that you go to in order to discern wisdom in the middle of this difficulty? I'm gonna never forget five years ago, this was happening in our own family. I've been here at the church for four years now, so you can figure out what that was about. But we started sensing that there was a disruption. I was working at a job that I loved. I was working at a church that I loved with leadership and people that I loved and believed in, in a ministry, and I loved the people there probably more than anything. And I was completely satisfied in this role and was going along this thing. And there was this thing taking place in me and Kat where it was this, this, this disruption going on inside of us. And we just sensed that God was leading us and taking us to this next place. Uh, other people were kind of discerning this thing too. And we didn't know. I already kind of always knew that I wanted to get into pastoral ministry and shepherd the church. I mean, I knew that back at 17 years old. I told other people, I was like, my heart, lo- I love the church. I love the church. And I love proclaiming God's goodness to anybody that's willing to listen. And so pastoral ministry seemed to make sense. And we got into it and just, just sensing this disruption. I had some conversations with my new boss that was there. And, um, and I said, hey, uh, I need to let you know, we need to start a little succession planning here. We need to start planning for the future. I don't think this is going to take longer than a year. Um, but we need to start planning for the future because God's shifting things and he's moving us out. And fortunately, it was a safe place at that work where you could talk about the future like that and you weren't immediately canned or fired or anything like that. There was a safe place, safe culture there. And so we started planning and praying. And I remember as Kat and I were thinking about it a lot, I just had this number in my mind that said six months. Just sit on it for six months and just do nothing but pray. 
And if you know me and Kat, like we're, um, we're not good at sitting still very long. And um, we're kind of aggressive people that like to go after things, take the bull by the horns and kind of do things. Anybody else like that? You're like, I don't like sitting around and waiting. I'm more of a doer than a thinker. Anyway, not that they're always at odds with each other, but <laughs> it's kind of the MO. And so for six months, we just committed to pray and pray and pray and say, God, there's this disruption and there's this church and we're willing to go wherever, wherever it is that you want us to go. And we don't know what that looks like. And it was terrifying. I'm not kidding you. Six months to the day that we started that process, I walked back from a meeting at the church that kind of confirmed more and more that he was leading us out. I walked back into my office and I got the first call from a recruiter about a church here in town that I already knew and loved, loved the opportunity that was there. We got excited, started talking with them about it. We started picking out houses and stuff like that. Started going down this path, had like two or three interviews with them and it was just aces all, all around. And we started sensing, okay, Lord, this is where you're taking us. December comes and this is all beginning and probably back in September, October of the year. Brian Radabaugh calls me in December and says, hey, have you thought about being a senior pastor? We have an opening here at the church. And I was like, we thought about it. I've never known the timing of this whole thing yet. I've always been very terrified at the, at the same time. And so we had this conversation, and ever since that conversation, that, uh, this church never got out of my heart. We come back to January, and I have another final round of interviews. We're talking about start dates and things of that nature. And we sit down there, and he can sense that there's a little bit of hesitation in us. And, and we sit there, and... Um, and he just says, let me ask you, what would keep you from taking this position? And I said, well, honestly, just there's a lot that's been changing and there's a lot that's been developing in us over the past, um, really since Christmas time as we've been praying a lot here and that um, God hasn't, a DBC, Dallas Bible Church is all over my heart and I can't let go of that thing. And I think that God is leading us to interview and go down that, that road. And he kind of laughed and he's like, he's like, you haven't even started interviewing at that place, seriously? And I was like, yeah, I... I don't know. He's, he goes, well, what are you going to do if, it, if, it, if the answer is no? And I was like, well, then we're just going to rest easy knowing that we were being obedient to what God was calling us to do. And I'm confident that he's going to open up something very, very similar. Church, the first time I came in, so I get back and figure out, okay, uh, my interviews have nothing to do with Brian. Brian has nothing to do with the process. And I'm like, you, wait, Brian has nothing to do with this? Are you kidding me? There's like a nationwide um, search committee thing and a recruiter and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what did I just do? We turned down this great, awesome thing that was over there and started interviewing. The first time I walked in here, I remember sitting with that search committee and just, just the heart was there. We just connected on every level possible. Kat came back with these interviews and she's connecting. And I remember one of these evenings, we just sat in the parking lot having less time with that, um, with that search committee and we just wept in the parking lot just saying, we're home. This is it. This is what he has called us into. And church, what I'm saying and what he's saying right here is if you've ever felt troubled and you've ever sat there and said, okay, I don't know where it is that you're calling us to go. I don't know what it is that you're calling us to do. He's saying that he will give you that wisdom over time as you and I come before the Lord Jesus Christ and we get in this regular rhythm of seeking him over and over and over again in prayer. He will give you the wisdom that you're longing for. And here it is, it may not be a one-time shouted out kind of a prayer while you're caught in traffic on 635. It's going to require this, hey, every single day we're pursuing you. God, would you bring your wisdom in the middle of the circumstance? God, would you open up what it is that you're leading us into in the middle of the season? God, I'm troubled. My heart is heavy and laden, and I'm begging you for wisdom. And what he's promising right here is that he will meet you in the middle of that time. And as you pray and you seek and to discern his will, he will give you the wisdom that you've been longing for. He continues here, and, and I love that it's not just troubles that we're invited to bring to him. He says, if it, is anyone among you happy, then let him sing songs of praise. In other words, church, like you don't even need, need, need to need anything to pray. 
I mean, you can just simply sit there because you're happy and you're satisfied in him. And you can just sit there and gather uh, even the friends together or sit there by yourself. And you can just sit there and sing. You don't even need to need anything. This could be one of these seasons where you're just totally satisfied in him and you still got reason to pray and to simply praise his name. Church, I just got to ask you, like, is that a normal part of your activity? Is this a normative part of your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ where you're so satisfied in him, you're so overwhelmed with joy and contentment and God is blessing this, that, and the other, where you just sit alone and you just sing songs of praise to him? Church, the reality is that you don't have to need anything. You don't have to wait to these times of desperation to come before him in prayer. There's a brand new relational dynamic here whereby he says, come to me even when you're happy. You can just sit there and sing. Men, are you okay with that? Like unlocking your heart and your soul and, and, and singing praises to God, knowing that he's blessed you in a million different ways that you may or may not even be aware of. Church, when was the last time like that was a part of your rhythm and you sat there and said, no, no agenda, God. God, I've got nothing on my agenda. I don't, I don't even need anything. I'm just so aware of how abundant you are in your blessings towards me. Taking Matt Klingler, a guy I used to work with back at Northwest. He was a singles pastor uh, before I was. What I loved about Matt, you always knew it, he was on campus because he was whistling everywhere he went. He was just like whistling these worship songs constantly. He's like walking up and down the, the, the hallways up of the church and he's just, he's singing songs out loud and like he was a terrible singer, guys. Like just, ter- like just a terrible singer and it did not matter. It was just so full of joy what God was doing all the rest, so aware of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that it just came out in song. I'm thinking of Sean Suit, my, my college roommate, and, and still to this day, one of my best friends in the world. He's living over in, uh, in, uh, in Kenya right now. And uh, we were roommates back at Texas A&M. We're checking out this house to go to consider moving into, and he's walking through it, and he's like, ooh, that would be an awesome prayer closet. And I was like, what the crud is a prayer closet? Like, that's just a weird concept, right? And he's like, no, 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 just some, it's a great place to go and to be alone and just, and just spend time in prayer. And I'll just tell you, like, some of my favorite times of that whole year would be coming home from classes sometimes, and, and I just walk upstairs, and I can see her, Sean, in this closet, and he's, like, singing at the top of his lungs. He's got these headphones on and the CD player going, because that's all we had back then, but anyway. Um, he's just rocking out to this, uh, to this music, and it was the bad Christian music back then, too. But he's just, he's just singing at the top of his lungs. He's just so full of joy, church. Like, when was the last time? that we came before the Lord and we're just like, I'm so aware of the goodness of God that I've got nothing else on my agenda. I'm just, I just want to praise you and sing praises unto you. And what James is saying is like, you don't have to be troubled. You don't have to be sick. You don't have to have the world collapsing in on you. There is divine access right there. You can come and you can, be, you can just express how satisfied you are in him. He keeps going and, and he says in 14, he says, is any among you sick? Is any among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. You know, it's fascinating. The original Greek, it says, if you anoint them with essential oils, then they heal faster. Um, thieves, evidently. So it's, according to my mom, it solved a bubonic plague or something like that. I don't know. All he's saying, church, is that there's some things you just don't want to pray about alone. Like there's some things here that you don't want to just... You don't want to just keep to yourself. I mean, he's saying right here, if you're sick, meaning you're really, 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 really sick, not just, hey, I've got a few sniffles or something like that. Like, I'm really, 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 really sick. My loved one over here is really, really, really sick. We just got back from the hospital, and there's a diagnosis here, and I don't know what to do in the middle of this thing. I'm troubled because of these things. What he's saying, if that's the place that you're in, he says, call the elders of the church to pray over you and anoint you with oil. 
And what's going on with the oil thing, all it is is a symbol of the Holy Spirit, whereby it is a sign of consecrating someone else, separating them as dedicated unto the Lord. People would do it in the old times of kings. They would designate them as anointed by God and set them apart. That's what we're doing. We're saying, Holy Spirit, come in. You're separated unto the Lord. We're trusting in you for healing and for healing alone. By the way, church, I was just to remind you, we do this here at the church. I don't know if you guys have ever been prayed over before. Maybe someone did the oil thing. Maybe you thought it was weird, didn't understand what's going on, but um, we do this here at the church. Gary and Nita O'Neill lead our prayer and compassion ministry whereby um, send people into hospitals and do visits as much as we're aware of them. And we go out there and we unashamedly pray for healing over people and we anoint them with oil. People come into our elder meetings all the time, which you're invited to. And uh, we would love to pray over you. You're always, always, always welcome. We pray on Sunday mornings early. You're welcome to come early then. You're able to do, do it Monday night. We'll do one-on-one prayer meetings during the week, but we will pray. And we do this with people all the time to pray. We call in the elders to pray over you and anoint you with oil. But here's why we do this. Here's why. Here's what it says in verse 15. Because the prayer that's offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise them up. Church, he's, I don't know if you need this reminder, but he's still in the business of healing people today. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there's power when you pray? Do you believe that he's not a deistic view of God, which is far away and disconnected from the interpersonal workings of this world today, that he actually hears your prayers, listens to your prayers, delights in your prayers, longs to move in response to your prayers? Are you aware that he is still healing to this day? And it's not to say, church, that there's always going to be healing all the time, right? Don't go to that, that extreme over there. Paul's going to talk about this thorn in the flesh that he begged God to remove over and over and over and over again, yet the answer continued to be no from God. No matter how hard he prayed, uh, the answer was no, I'm not going to remove this thorn in the flesh. So Paul just simply says, he goes, fine, I'm just going to boast in my sickness then. I'm going to boast in my infirmities that the power of Jesus Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities. Check out this attitude. I take pleasure in my infirmities and reproaches and need and persecution and distress for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In other words, like uh, the answer is no, that's fine. I'm just going to boast in this thing, recognizing this is all part of the will of God, the mysterious will of God that I may or may not fully understand at this point in time. I'm just going to boast it. Clearly, God has a purpose in this. It's the same thing in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul's writing this church in Corinth, and he goes, I've heard rumors that people are, are getting sick, and they're actually dying. You want to know why that is, church? It's because you're not taking communion seriously. Literally, that's what he says there. You're not, evidently, they're, they're gathering together these, for these large meals of communion, and some people are gorging, and they're eating to their, uh, to their stomachs bursting, right? And other people have no food to eat with. Some people are getting drunk and other people have nothing to go with. They didn't do the little cracker thing and the little juice thing at that point in time. But he's simply saying, like, some of you are sick and you're like, because, because, because you're, you're not taking that thing seriously. 2 Timothy 4.20, Erastus stayed in Corinth. Trophimus had left behind because he was sick. In other words, Paul's looking at him kind of going, okay, um, there's some things that I'm praying about right here that just aren't being answered. Nevertheless, like church, we've got to understand that the faith-filled prayer is still the means by which the power of God is going to be unleashed in the world today. So sometimes the answer is no, but, but faith-filled prayer is the means by which the power of God is still going to be unleashed in the world today. I was reading a little while ago some stories from a book uh, by Ben Sherwood. He wrote this book called The Survivor's Club. Anybody read about this book? I think it was written in 2009. It's a compilation of miraculous survival stories. Ben Sherwood, um, I think he was leading a division over at ABC at the time. I actually think he's the president of ABC. He's really, really high up. 
not a believer. And so he wanted to compile all these miraculous survival stories and see if there's a common thread there. And so he had a fascinating quote in there. He goes, what was fascinating was, I didn't want to write about faith. I'm not a faith-filled person. I don't believe in God. I didn't want to write about faith. But the problem I kept having was that 80% of the people that had these miraculous survival stories, they all attributed their survival to their faith in God. God was the one that came and brought rescue. 80% of them, he goes, I, didn't, I wanted to leave God out of this thing. The problem is everybody was saying, God rescued me from the this, from this middle of this situation. He tells one story. There's a lot of them you could have chosen. You could have, I could have chosen. Um, this one has to do with elders, and I love this story. But he tells a story of this guy named Gary McCain. And um, Gary was an AC repairman. Uh, and he, evidently, he was up on a roof one day with his team, and they were doing a lot of work on an AC unit. He had to go down the shaft in order to do some heavy lifting. Uh, he's the skinny guy of the group, and so he's the one that fits down the shaft and goes down there. So he's down there in the shaft. While he's down there, the AC unit explodes. Massive fireball goes all the way up the, sh up the shaft there. Um, he manages to crawl out and to land up on the roof. And when he gets out there, finally comes to it just a tiny, tiny bit, he realizes he's on fire. Um, and his entire body, everything, all of his clothes are immediately eviscerated. There's only a, half of a boot left and a belt buckle laying on him. And he goes, that's when I blacked out. And so, uh, of course, the authority, everybody, the, the paramedics get there. Nearly 85% of his body had third-degree burns on there. They expect him to die uh, within minutes. Immediately, they put him on a gurney. They, they bring him to the hospital. They, they put him in a medically-induced coma. Uh, immediately, he's just knocked out the entire time. And, of course, since he's in this book, we know that um, he has a miraculous survival story. Um, sometime about a week later, he wakes up from this medically-induced indu coma. And, um, and he wakes up, and all the nurses and everybody's sitting there going, you were supposed to be dead. How in the world are you alive? He's like, I don't know, but I had this really, really, really weird dream while I, was, while I was in there. And he goes, here's what I dreamed. I dreamed that I tried to get up from the bed, and I actually walked out of here, and I walked down this, this hallway there, and I passed up the nurse's station that was out there, and all the nurses were out there, and I tried to go out that exit door, those two double doors about, down by the stairs, but I tried to get to those doors, and both of those doors were locked. And so I turned around and I went to the other side. I walked down this hall and I walked by, you know, he start, he's describing in detail these hallways. And I go to the other exit over there and those doors are locked. And then I tried a third exit and that, those doors were locked too. And he goes, I just kept trying to leave the hospital. No matter what exit I tried, uh, everything, I tried everything I looked at was locked. And of course, the nurses and everybody that's listening to this story, these non-believers and Christians alike, they're listening to the story going like, that's really, really, really weird. He's never been in this hospital ever before a day in his life. He was in a coma when he came in here, yet he is describing in detail the hallways of this whole hospital. Beyond that, what's even weirder was that the elders of his church decided to come in and pray over his body. While they were in there praying, he went into cardiac arrest. The elders had to be rushed out of the room. The doctors came in there to try to resuscitate him and bring him back to life. Meanwhile, the elders go out to the waiting room and they go to each exit of that hallway there, and they start praying through repetition, God, do not let him leave until he is fully healed. God, do not let him leave until he is fully healed. And the, and the doctors and the nurses are just sitting there listening to this kind of going, like, what, do, what do we do with this? Ben Sherwood, this non-believer who's checking out all the facts, who doesn't want to talk about faith, is going, hey, I don't know what to do with this. Like, what do you do with this? The elders were in there praying. They were out there. They, they, they literally were praying over him. He could not leave. He was dead. By, all, by, by every account, he should have been dead. Like, how, what do you do with this vision? And Ben Sherwood's sitting there going, like, I'm not a believer, but, but this happened. Church, what do you do with this? Like, do you actually know, like, God moves in response to your prayers? 
He, he moves when, your peop, when people come together in faith and they pray. I mean, Jesus is going to teach us to pray that way. He's going to say, church, you, you want to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. There's a brand new relational dynamic take place. Thy kingdom come right now. Thy will be done on earth right now as it already is in heaven. In other words, church, in as much as your, these things are going to be true in your kingdom, I am praying that they would come and be true right now. So if it's going to be true in your kingdom, that, there, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, if that's what's true in your kingdom, God, I'm asking right now, would you just add to our number daily those who are being saved? Father, I'm praying that the nations would bow their knee at your foot, that you would bring revival into this place, that our children's ministry, men's ministry, women's ministry, small group ministry, that people would get saved, that you would add to our number daily those who are being saved. Inasmuch as that's going to be true in your kingdom, I'm praying for thy kingdom to come right now. If it's true that your kingdom is going to be a day when there's going to be no more tears, no more crying, no more suffering, and no more pain, Father, I'm praying right now, no more sin, no more suffering. God, break these addictions that are going on right here. Let me have freedom right now. Let there be no more suffering. I'm praying for total and complete healing right now. No more sadness. God, would you bring joy? Would you restore that joy right now? In as much as it is true in your kingdom, I'm praying right now, thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come right now as it already is in heaven. And Father, in as much as the answer is no right now, that is okay with me because I'm also praying for your will to be done, not mine. So God, I'm not praying for my will to take place. I'm praying for things that are gonna be true in your kingdom. And Father, if your answer is no or not yet, then I'm okay with that because ultimately I want your will to be done, not my will. Father, church, it's, it's, um, it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter three. I love that story. You know what I'm talking about? The fiery furnace. and like, This is what it looks like to pray faith-filled prayers. You remember what takes place. They refuse to bow. King Nebuchadnezzar, giant statue, making everybody bow. They refuse to bow, so King Nebuchadnezzar threatens to throw them in this fiery furnace and kill them. I love what they say um, just before they're about to be tossed in. Verse 16, they say, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves to you anymore. If we're thrown into this blazing furnace, the God that we serve, he's able to deliver us. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But here it is, even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, we will not serve the gods that you worship, and we will not bow to the image of gold that you have set up. In other words, here it is, like, I know that he can do this miraculous thing that I'm hoping for, and I even expect that he will, but even if he doesn't, I'm still not going to bow no matter what, because at the end of the day, I'm surrendered to his will above my own in any, in any, in any case that comes up. So it's like, that's what it looks like to pray faith-filled prayers. I know that he can. I expect that he will. But even if he doesn't, I'm still not going to bow no matter what. And so James comes in and he says, hey, if you're sick, call the elders of the church to come and pray. If you're troubled, just pray. If you're sick, pray. Don't get all caught up in your head and say, you know what, that person wasn't healed. So like, don't be a pessimist in prayer that says, you know what, there's exceptions, therefore I'm not even going to try. Be the optimist that says, hey, there's evidence here that God moves in response to our prayer. So I'm going to believe him in the middle of this time. He continues with one more, and I love this connection here. He says in 15, he says, if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, here it is, confess your sins to one another. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. In other words, church, it takes faith to heal the sick, and it takes confession to heal, totally heal the sinner. Because here it is, sometimes, church, like the, the two worlds are interconnected. The physical is tied with the spiritual. The spiritual is tied with the physical. All of it's tied in with the emotional. And a lot of times the reason that we're experiencing some of the physical symptoms that we're praying about 
It really has more to do with the sin matter than anything else. And granted, I want you to hear me because it's not always the fact that there is a connection. Nevertheless, there are connections that take place. Matthew chapter 9, take heart because your sins are forgiven. He says to a paralytic, Jesus is going to be speaking to this paralytic and he's going to come to him for physical healing. He can't walk or move or anything. And Jesus says, take heart, your sins are forgiven. Nobody's expecting that, but they're kind of going, okay, why would you do this? And he's going, well, because I have authority to do so. And I'm able to discern that the thing that he really, really, really needs right now is for his sins to be forgiven. And secondarily, that he'd be able to walk and be completely set free. It's the same thing that was happening in the church in Corinth, right? People are dying and people are getting sick because your spiritual life, things aren't okay. You're pushing people over. You're gorging yourself while these people have nothing. You're getting drunk. These people have absolutely nothing. None of you are confessing anything. None of us are leading into repentance. Like you're making a mockery of communion. Therefore, that's the reason why there's sickness and there's death taking place in this family. Church, there's sometimes that there's a connection here between the spiritual and the physical. And again, it doesn't mean that there always is. John chapter 9, the disciples see a blind man and they say, Jesus, why is this guy blind? Was it because of his own sin or was it because of his parents' sin? And he goes, it's neither. He's not blind because of a sin problem. It's not because of that. It's that you were going to understand my power in this moment. And then he touches him and he's like, boom, not blind anymore. You see that I've got power and authority over this thing. Sometimes, sometimes they're connected. Sometimes they're not connected. But the point of the matter is he has wired us in such a way to where at different points in time, like our spiritual and our physical are deeply connected in the in-between. Time Magazine wrote about this, by the way, February 2009. Again, secular articles and secular pieces here. Um, they did a piece on belief and biology, how faith is connected to healing. And honestly, most of the article is pretty snarky about faith, as you can imagine. Um, nevertheless, the conclusion of non-Christian scientists was that faith is good for you physically. Faith is physically good for you. And they cited this article that was also done right around the same time. And, um, and uh, they basically talked about how people who go to church regularly... Um, meaning on a, on a mostly almost a, a weekly basis from the time that they were kids to the time that they die, people who go to church regularly throughout the course of their life on average end up living seven years longer than people who don't. Secular, non-Christian study. It was actually done at UT Austin, so you know it's secular. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. There's, anyway, anyway, sorry. Um, ugh. But they're all recognizing there's a connection here between faith and healing and, and the physical life. I mean, seven years longer than people who don't. No agenda there. They're just looking at data saying these people were faithful to continue in, in a church service. Like, that's not a preacher saying, hey, if you don't go to church, you're going to die. Like, these are secular scientists saying, hey, this is what's taking place over the course of time. Even today, 2018, time, another one back in 2018 said, if a long life is what you're after, prayer and regular church activity may be the answer to your prayers. In other words, church, like the entire thing is, con is connected. And I think we know that it's connected. I think we can sense it and I think we can feel it. I want you to check this out. Psalm 32, verse 3 and 4. Listen to what David says. He says, when I was quiet about my sin, my bones wasted away. I was groaning all day long and my strength was sapped in the summer. When I was quiet about my sin, when I refused to confess my sin and bring it to the surface, my bones wasted away. I was groaning all day long and my strength was sapped in the summer. And church, the truth of the matter is that some of us are absolutely there. I mean, the truth, of the, like some of us are absolutely there. We have been dealing with very, very dark things for a really, really long time. And the truth of the matter is you've never told a soul. 
And you're sitting there kind of going, okay, Lord, why in the world is my marriage falling apart? Why is he or why is she so messed up? I don't understand. And we're sitting there kind of going like, why in the world does it feel like I'm always angry and always annoyed? Why in the world do I have trouble getting out of bed every morning? Why in the world did I used to be so full of joy, so full of faith, so full of obedience, and today like everything is a burden, everything is heavy, and I can barely get up out of bed. Like, my, Why is my strength sapped and my bones wasting away when I used to be so full of joy and so full of life? And church, what James is saying here is that confession will be the key to your healing. Church, it's not a Red Bull that you need. Like, it's not a, a banana or like a gluten-free muffin this time around. Like, James is saying the confession is going to be the key to the healing you long to see in your life. Like, what you need is to be honest about your sin and to confess it out loud and to hide no more. For your prayer life to shift from God, let me not be caught to, Lord, here's everything that's true. And I'm going to bring in a trusted brother or sister over here, and I'm going to confess these things that I can finally be set free. So honestly, church, one of the things that I'm praying a lot this next semester is that we would get serious about this. The confession would be a normative part of our daily, of our experience with the Lord Jesus Christ, that our life groups would change, that you and that me would seek out trusted friends, trusted men and women that are walking with the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I need you to listen to my confessions. And I need you to meet me with grace and with truth at the same time in such a way that you're going to help me repent from the things that I'm struggling to repent from. Because what James is saying right here is these things that we're praying for, that we long to see God do in our life to set us free from the bondage of addiction, to set us free from these strongholds, they will come when prayers that have elevated our lives and they will specifically come through the means of confession told you a number of years ago, we saw this in our own life, is shortly after the time that Caleb was born, and it was a very, very difficult part of our life. A lot of us, um, you know, new kid comes in, everything's shifting and changing, and quite honestly, this is a time that was just really kind of dark and hard for me and Kat. We were always at each other's throat, we were arguing, um, it's just a very, very difficult season. I remember going to life group, and we didn't know what to really do about this. And, and of course, I'm a pastor at that time. And so there's this thing with pastors. Hey, you're supposed to have the answers. You're not supposed to be struggling. And we sat out there in front of that group that one day. And, and we just we were in the middle of an argument. You ever do that where you argue on the way to church or life group or something like that? Like, how does this come up? We're having an argument. And we're just sitting there in the front of this house. And we're like, we've got to, we need help. We need help. I remember walking in there that evening and just saying, hey, guys, I... We don't want to hijack this group and make it all about us, but we need help. We're not okay. We're struggling. We can't get on the same page. We're always angry and annoyed at something. We're just not, we're not there. We just broke down. And what happened was just like all this shame just started just coming out. These things we were holding on to because of shame, which, you know, like the gospel undoes shame. Shame is that thing that says, hey, you can't ever talk about this thing. You can't ever be honest about this thing. And you need to keep it to yourself, but the gospel undoes it because it reminds you that says, hey, you've already been forgiven of these things. And we just brought it up and just let go of that shame and just said, we need help. And that group surrounded us that day and just started to pray. And we couldn't believe God to do great things, and so we just leaned on their, their faith at that time. We couldn't see the end of the tunnel, but they could see the end of the tunnel, and we just leaned on them. 
And what James is saying here, church, is that confession is going to be the key to your freedom. All the different things that you've been praying about, talking about, you put it up on your wall. You talked about it with a counselor. My confession is going to be the key to your healing. And so James wraps up this whole thing, and he just reminds us the prayer of a righteous person it can accomplish a lot. And I'm just wondering if anybody here needs that reminder today, that your prayers can actually move the heart of God to intervene in whatever's going on that he can do incredible things. He gives us a story of Elijah who prayed for rain. God let it rain. He prayed against rain. God stopped the rain. And the reality is some of us need that. We've, we need it to rain. We need blessing. We need hope. We need freedom. We need it to rain upon us. Others of us, we need it to stop raining troubles and difficulty and uncertainty and all these different kinds of things. And what James is saying is that there is freedom and there is going to be healing that comes when we understand that 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 it all takes place when we're comfortable on our knees, petitioning him to do what we cannot do for ourselves. Church healing is coming, but our prayer life has to be elevated. So I'm gonna invite you to pray with me. Father, we do love you and thank you that you haven't stayed far away. God, that you're not annoyed at our requests, even though it's the thousandth time we've been praying about the same thing. You don't get annoyed. You don't get cold towards us. You don't harden your affections to us, God. You welcome our troubles, all of our worries, all of our confusion. God, and you promise to bring wisdom. And so, God, I pray that you'll bring wisdom to somebody who's seeking it right now. Father, I pray for the person who's sick. God, I pray that you would bring healing. God, that you would strengthen their faith in this time, that they would see you move in miraculous ways. I do pray for that. Yet at the same time, we also pray, God, not my will, but your will be done. We want to see you lifted up. We want to see you glorified, God. So we invite you to come and to do that. And Father, I pray that you'll bring all of us to this place where we are so satisfied in you. We are so aware of the goodness and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that the only thing that makes sense to do is to sit in a room and to sing songs of praise to you. God, we love you. You're more than worthy of it all. You're invited to come and to move. Pray these things in Jesus' name.